Well, good morning again. We are in a sermon series titled Pursuing Greatness, and it began a few weeks back, and uh, we, we began by looking at greatness in light of God's glory. Last week, we looked at greatness in light of eternity. Uh, today, we look at, at greatness in light of the kingdom, in light of the kingdom of God. Um, you know, prior to our passage that we're going to read here in Mark chapter 10, earlier Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus and the disciples encounter a rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler is challenged by Jesus to follow him, but he must first give up all that he owns to follow him. And the man says no. He says no to Christ and no to Christ's kingdom and turns and walks away, dejected. And the disciples go, what about us? We've stuck around. Surely that means good things for us. And Jesus, in his patience and his kindness with his disciples, who still don't quite see clearly, he says, yeah, you're right. You're going to have, you've left your homes and your families and your lands, and there will be blessings for you and persecutions. (laughs) And then he he tries to correct their understanding and correct their vision by, by saying, but many who are first will be last. He shows us an important truth this morning is that it's hard to see greatness in the kingdom. We need Jesus Christ to to help us see that and to pursue that. We are looking at um, passage uh, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. And I put verse 32 through 34 in there because the third time now Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to suffer and die and rise again. The third time. And yes, they still don't quite get it. Before we're so hard on them, we need to remember we're kind of like them, too. All right. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid and and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. We thank you, Jesus, that we see a kind and patient and gentle teacher and shepherd. Uh, May we see in this passage what you've accomplished for us. And may we be um, not just enlightened, but filled with your spirit that we we may walk as, as you call us to walk. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know that the, the human eye is, is quite fascinating but, fascinating, but also at the same time just a little weird? Um, you know, the human eye, what it does is, is it takes in an image, and, and it takes the image, uh, it enters in through the cornea and through the lens, and then it gets flipped upside down and shot back at your retina. So that the image that comes out of your eye, goes towards your brain, is upside down. It's not until you're, it enters the cerebral cortex where the, the, the brain actually goes, huh, all right, this is upside down, and flips it for you. Same thing with the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is upside down. It comes to us and it doesn't make much sense. It comes to us and we scratch our heads and we wonder at what Jesus says and what he's doing. It's not until he actually helps us, not until the Holy Spirit comes in us and, and changes the way we see things and see the kingdom and see Christ. It's Christ's work in our lives that takes his kingdom and allows us to see it as we appropriately are. And the kingdom of Christ is upside down in many ways, right? As Grayson just read earlier, Jesus said that many who are first will be last. It's the broad road that leads to destruction. The narrow one that no one really travels on, that's the one that leads to eternal life. The kingdom is not for the confident, it's for the poor in spirit. The kingdom isn't for those who flee to comfort, but it's for those who take up their cross, And follow Christ. And then by the end of our passage this morning, we come to see that the kingdom of heaven is so upside down that that moving up in the kingdom is accomplished by taking the down escalator. See that in verse 43. But whoever be great among you must be your servant. Greatness, according to Christ and in his kingdom, is is upside down to the greatness that we experience and see in our world. And so we need Christ to correct our vision, so to speak. One commentator, David Garland, puts it this way. He says, looking at James and John is like looking in the mirror. We can see our own selfishness. And Mark hopes that we can see how foolish we look. Through these disciples, we explore our own lives. What we see this morning is that we are by nature a prideful people, a people whose focus of our lives is mostly on ourselves. We're self-consumed, but this is not the way to greatness. Um, What we'll see is that the kingdom of heaven is upside down, and we need Christ to help us see it rightly. And we're going to spend our our time in two areas. First, we're going to look at greatness in the world of man, and then greatness in the kingdom of God. First, greatness... In the world of man. Here's the big idea from this. Greatness in the world of man is fueled by pride and it results in self-promotion. The the word that summarizes greatness in the kingdom of God is humility. 
the word that summarizes greatness in the world of man is is pride. And the reason why pride is at the top of the list is that really all of our temptations feed our pride. The reason temptations are so tempting is because they do something good for us, something that we want for ourselves. They appeal to self-gratification, self-protection, self-centeredness, right? Let me ask you, have you ever scratched your head and says, wow, I was just tempted to serve? <laughs> you don't, do you? You don't wake up in the morning and say, you know, last night I gave in to the temptation to clean my sister's room. We don't say things like that. More often or not, we're tempted to go tell mom and dad our sister's room is messy, right? Why? Because we want to look good in light of our, our siblings' failures. We're prideful by nature. We naturally think of ourselves first. Scripture is full of condemnation of pride. Just one passage I'll give you. Uh, Proverbs 16.6 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And you know what the first thing on the list is? Prideful eyes. Prideful eyes look down on others. Prideful eyes expect special treatment. Prideful eyes say, but do you know who I am? Prideful eyes is offensive. Pride is offensive to God. Because why is it offensive to God? Because it exalts one man over another man who are created equal. But it also exalts man himself over God. That's what pride does in our lives. Pride is the root of all of our brokenness. Pride keeps you from calling out to God. Pride keeps you from reaching out and serving others. Pride even keeps you from seeing your pride. The disciples don't see it in themselves, but as we watch over their lives, I love Mark because he allows us to hover above the scene, kind of inter interacting with it and finding ourselves in it. They are proud. They are proud that they've stuck with Jesus, even though all these other people have left him. And they're expecting something as a result. Jesus, look what we've done for you. And it's true, we can be this way too. Jesus, look at how I've, look at how I've been lately. Look at my life. Look what I've done for you. Look at the Bible studies I've, I've led. Look at how I serve around the church. Look, at, look, look. I've done these things. And the expectation that Jesus will miraculously pat us on the back or give us something that matters to us. Our passage begins with Jesus and his disciples. They're on a final push to the cross. It's just a few days and Jesus will be hanging there. In verse 33, Jesus says, see, we are going to Jerusalem. And, and he says, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be um, mocked and spit upon and, and, and I'm going to suffer. and I'm going to die and I will rise. But it's as if it went in one ear and out the other. It's as if Jesus is speaking in stereo, but they've got one of the earbuds out. They're only hearing half of the track. On one channel, Jesus says, I will suffer, die, and rise. The other channel, he says, I will sit on a throne in glory. And that's the only thing that they're hearing. They're not listening to Jesus' words in stereo. In stereo, when Christ speaks to us, he says, the glory that you experience in your life through me is a glory that you experience through suffering. We're not to split the tracks. 
But we often do that, don't we? We split the track. We say, you know, uh, so much for that suffering stuff. I've got Christ, and so my life is all about me and following my pursuits. And, and we try to do what the disciples here, and we try to commandeer Jesus for our own cause. Even, even, even churches and, or religious missionaries can, can, can commandeer Jesus for their own cause. It's something I need to watch out on my own part. Is it, why, why are we seeking to grow this church? Is it for our own glory? Is it really, are we commandeering Jesus in order to do stuff to, to, to lift ourselves up? Or are we really truly seeking to serve our neighbors as Christ does? We're so prone to hearing Jesus um, with one earbud hanging around our neck. With their minds on Christ's glory and not hearing the suffering, their pride bubbles to the surface. We see this in three ways. We see it in their ambition, in their arrogance, and in their antagonism. First, the ambition. This is selfish ambition. You know, you know, it's, it's not a, a bad thing to be ambitious, but to be selfishly ambitious, well, yes. And we see that in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Uh, kids, have you ever approached your parents that way? <laughs> parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? Your kids ask you to say yes before they even tell you what they're asking for. We need, to, we need to see this for what it really is. It's a way of manipulating God for your own agenda. Selfish ambition attempts to get others to give you what they have on, on your terms, for your own purposes, for your own glory. But did you notice how the Lord responded? I don't know about you. I would have been hard. I maybe would have kicked him in the shin and said, hurry up, follow me. You know, That's not how he responds. Verse 36 and 37, he simply asks, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Where, where's the focus of James and John? It's on themselves. They're not even thinking about the other ten and how they might like tick them off. Right. They're just thinking about themselves. We've got Jesus's ear. We've got our agenda and we're going to ask him to fulfill our agenda. No matter what it does to the other people around us. They're thinking how their relationship with Jesus can materially benefit themselves. And this is how the world works, right? We cozy up to that new acquaintance because, oh, we hear she works for the mayor. Or oh, he's got season tickets, right? It's nice to have friends in high places. If we can't be on the throne, it's good to be seated at the right or the left. That's our nature. That's how the world does things. So that's the selfish ambition. It flows from our pride, not for the arrogance. The arrogance manifests itself as, as overconfidence. You know, on the one hand, we should affirm the disciples, right? They do believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They get that right. They do believe that he will sit on a throne. They do believe that he is coming into his glory. They believe he will wear a crown. But the problem is they foolishly believe that they are already fit for the kingdom, that they are already worthy for it. Not just that, but they're worthy of lofty positions in the kingdom. But it's true in ancient times, kings and all kinds of different rulers, that's what they did. They fought their way to the top. And no matter how high they got, they always brought people along with them to reward them for their service. And also to say, hey, I still need you, you know, sit at my right or sit at my left. But the disciples obviously thought that of all the people that were following Jesus, well, they should be the ones to sit at the right and the left. Jesus replies in verse 38. You do not know what you're asking. 
then he follows up with this question. It's a little perplexing. I'll, I'll explain it. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptism with, the, with which I am baptized? What's he asking? Well, the cup is used all throughout the Old Testament as a symbol of God's anger and his wrath to be poured out over sin. And, and for instance, in Psalm 75, 8 says, for in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. You guys know what dregs is? You ever poured out a bottle of wine at the very bottom? There's this sediment stuff in it. It's like silty and gross, right? That's the dregs. Soon Jesus will make it to the cross. They're going up to Jerusalem. And on the cross, all of God's anger towards sin, and he's right to be angered towards sin. All of that anger, that cup of wrath, will be poured out on Jesus. He will drink it, all of it, including the dregs. Baptism. It doesn't refer to Christian baptism here. This is more of a general sense of baptism. It's like a deluge of suffering that's to come upon Jesus, just because of who he is and what his mission is about here in this world. So the disciples... So he asked the disciples, are you able to drink this uh, cup? Are you able to be baptized? And how do they reply? We are able, right? Great overconfidence. They overestimate not only their worth, but their worthiness. And, you know, many people today say when, you know, with regards to Christ, they say, I am able. You know, I I really don't need you, Christ, in my life to provide what you've offered on the cross, Uh, Someone to die for my sins. I really don't think I need that. You know, what are you trying to say? That I have a problem? There's something wrong with me? Are you judging me? Some people will respond. I, I don't. I don't quite need you. I'm able on my own to do whatever needs to please. Whatever I need to do to please God. And many Christians foolishly think that this life that Jesus calls us to, this life of difficulty and persecution and suffering, we think, oh, we're able. We can do it. Thank you, Jesus. Tell me what I got to do. I'm going to go do it. I, I don't need much help. We're overconfident. Interesting, when you see the lives of the Christians, even after Jesus teaches them all this stuff, they get to the upper room, and um, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but after the upper room, they go to the Mount of Olives. And they're at the Mount of Olives, and Jesus makes this prediction. He's just about ready to be turned over. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, and he quotes a prophecy about him, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. He tells him, you're all going to just disappear from me. I'm going to suffer alone on that cross. You will be gone. And what does Peter do? He stands up and he says, I don't know about these schmucks, <laughs> these other guys, but I'm never going to fail you. You just look to me, Jesus. I will be the one. I am able. And Jesus looks at Peter with great love, I'm sure. And he says, Peter, you don't get it. The rooster's going to crow twice. And by that time, you will have denied me three times. We know that's what happened. Think about this. James and John asked to be on Jesus' right and left when he came into glory. But where were they? They were scattered. When that crown was pressed on his head and the blood drips down and the nails is put into his wrists and his feet, who's there on his right and left? Criminals. How ironic. How upside down. All of his disciples fled. Criminals hung on his right and left. Back to our story. 
Again, Jesus responds gently, doesn't he? He says, you know, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right or my left, it's really not mine to grant, but for those who it's been prepared. He's saying, you know, you're going to suffer. Yeah, in a certain sort of way, you will drink the cup. In a certain sort of way, this deluge will hit you. But right and left, I'm not able to choose that. My Heavenly Father has already kind of figured that out. And I don't know who it is. And what this shows is God is sovereign. You know, um, God is sovereign over how you will suffer in your life. We often look around at our fellow Christians like, and we're like, well, how come that person seems to have it so easy? And yet, it's so hard for me. Why is it that God must seem to overlook me? He doesn't care for me. He's allowing me to go through this difficult suffering in my life. Why is it? It must be something wrong here. And, and, and I should be sitting at his right hand or left. Right? And, and the reality is, Jesus says, it's not, it's not for me to decide. He's also saying there's suffering coming, and I don't know who's it going to be who suffers more than the next person, but that's what's going to happen. We need to stop comparing each other. You know what happened in the end? The first will be last, and the last will be first. James, the brother, uh, he was the first to die. Shortly after the church was established, he was beheaded. John, he was the last one. He died an old man uh, on a prisoner on an island of Patmos. Um, Neither one of them on on earth sat on Jesus' right or left. So here we go. Pride manifests itself in our lives as ambition and arrogance, but also as antagonism. Antagonism is a spirit of, of competition. Instead of serving in humility, we compete. Look at verse 41. It says, and then the ten, that's the other disciples. When they heard of it, they became indignant with James and John. The others were outraged and annoyed, right? And rightly so but for the wrong reasons. They weren't outraged because of this big spiritual fumble on the part of James and John. They weren't there to pick them up and care for them. They were ticked because they got beaten to the punch. James and John got to Jesus first, and that irked them. We feel this way too at times, don't we? We don't really notice it as often as it really happens, but if we were to hover over our own lives and look at how we interact with others, we behave this way. For instance, when you're in school, there was ever a time when you, you knew the answer and you raised your hand through for other people raised their hand, but the teacher calls on someone else and it upsets you. You had a chance to shine. You weren't called on, right? You've experienced that. Or how about this outrageous reality? Have you ever become upset because you're in a group and you, and you, you knew you needed to maybe thank your leader and, and you want to be the one to thank the leader in front of everybody, but somebody else thanked them first and you get mad? Is it just me? Am I the only one who's done that? You know, it's like I was going to praise you, but somebody else beat me to it. I'm, you know, what is that? It's wrong. It's sinful. It's shameful. We do it every day. That's how the world operates. It proves Isaiah's words right when Isaiah in 64 verse 6 says, All of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. All the good things we do for our own glorious purposes, they're filthy rags in God's sight. Until Christ gives you his grace and changes you from within, our good deeds are like filthy rags. Why? Because our so-called good deeds are done so that we can look better compared to others, so we can feel good or, or look good. They're done in pride, not in humility. And the scary thing is, even after turning to Christ and trusting him with the dregs of our life, we can still act this way. 
So the disciples model for us what we no doubt see in our world, in our lives. Greatness in the world of man is fueled by pride and results in self-promotion. Jesus calls them together to press into their hearts another way. There is the way of the kingdom, and it's upside down to what you see in the world around you. And he, he speaks to them, and he speaks to us. He tells us this. He tells us greatness in the kingdom of heaven is fueled by humility, and it results in self-denial and service to others. How do we see that? Look at verse 42. And Jesus called them to him, and he said to them, you numbskulls. All right, no, he didn't. Uh, he said, you know that those who are... Um, considered rulers of the Gentiles, lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus is saying, you know how the world works. It's all around you. It's, you've seen the selfish power grabs and the striving after greatness. You've seen it. It's all around you. And what he's doing with his disciples is he's getting, trying to get them to close their eyes and pause and then open them so they can see things rightly. And, 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 if, and, if, and if, we, if we participate with this passage through the work of the Holy Spirit, we can do that too. Jesus is saying, where have you seen this? He's saying, you see it all around you. And, and this attitude, where does it come from? It comes, it's pervasive in the world. And he, and, he, and he goes to the highest levels. But the truth is, this is the way of, from the very beginnings of life and the very lowest levels of, of society, this approach to life is pervasive. But he, he goes to the rulers and he says, um, you know, he, he says, this is what the rulers are like. And it's true. The rulers in his day were ambitious. They were self-promoting. They were confident, arrogant, self-exalting, dictatorial, domineering. When they came into power, they lorded over other people. They stomped on them. They suppressed them to make sure there was no revolts. That's the way things are done in this world. To get to this place, they climb on top of other people. And when they get to the top, they expect those other people they climbed on top of to serve them. I've earned this. I'm to be served. I've gotten this high. You serve me. And that's the way it remains to this day. It's a lot easier to see in our, our day in the big uh, evil countries like oh, over in, in uh, North Korea and, and Syria and China and Russia. You know, that's the way things are done over there. But it's also true. It's done in America, right? It's done, it's done in, our, in, our, in our leaders, our local and national. It's also done in our workplace. You know, uh, you, know you climb over the backs of somebody in order to get your proposal uh, approved. And we climb and climb. You know, we fight hard to get tenure, right? Um, that's how we do things in our world. We grab, we claw, we trample, we make excuses. Thankfully, Jesus pauses and causes these disciples in us to see what, what true greatness really is. He, show, he says in verse 43, But it shall not be so among you. He's speaking to them and he's speaking to us. It shall not be so among you. Christians who live in this world of clawing and clamoring and seeking greatness for oneself, it shall not be so among you. There is no room in God's kingdom for this kind of pride. And then he flips the world on its head. And, and he, what does he say in verse 43? He says, but it shall be, not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. 
The word great, it's the Greek word megas, is where we get the word mega. We like mega, mega mall, mega millions, we like mega, right? Mega's good, right? Um, the Greek word for servant is diakonos. Diakonos, all right? Deacons, right? Okay. Um, we like mega, we don't like diakonos. Jesus builds on that. He says, okay, he builds on greatness. He takes it to a whole nother level. Uh, he says, if whoever among you is to be protos, that's first, protos, prototypes, where we get that word. Whoever wants to be protos first, um, you know, that's, that's the, uh, you know, must become like a slave. Uh, that, that word is doulos, all right? Uh, every, you know, there's a lot of great baseball players out there, uh, but, but not everybody gets into the Hall of Fame, right? Uh, those who are in the Hall of Fame get a lot of first place votes, right? They're protos. Um, they're not just magos, they're protos. And he's saying, um, in order to be first, you must be a slave of all. Now, remember, slavery in, in, in the ancient Near East is far different than slavery that was experienced here in America in the, in the 1700s, 1800s. Um, it wasn't by race. Um, a lot of times people sold themselves into slavery. It was a way to find a, a guaranteed work, a place to sleep, and a little bit of pay, right? Uh, and so and most, most people who sold themselves into slavery back then were actually able to buy their own freedom by the time they were 30, at least in the Roman, Roman Empire. That was how that was. So it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit, it's totally, in many ways, different than what we've experienced here in America. So, but there's a difference between slavery and a servant. Right. A servant fills a role. They go home at night. A slave is owned by uh, someone. They're controlled. Jesus is saying this. Those who are esteemed among you will be those who serve others and consider themselves bound to others. Now, a couple important points. Notice this. Jesus doesn't say if you want to be great. Go be a servant. If, if you want to be first, go be a slave. He doesn't do that, does he? He says, he says no, the, those among you who are great will be like this. Why doesn't he say, hey, if you want to be great, go be a servant? Because our pride would bubble up, right? Yeah, I want to be great. Okay, I got to go serve. That's what I got to do. All right, so if I do ten things today, is that good enough? Right? That's how we are, right? But Jesus says, no, I want you to understand. When you look around you, don't look at the world the way, the, don't look at leaders the way the world does. You're looking for greatness in a different way. Those around you who are great will be the ones who are servants. And they will, the ones who's first among you in, in your congregation or in your community, that's the one who is so bound up in serving others that it's as if they're a slave to the people around them. That's greatness. That's first in my kingdom. Do you see that? He, he could have said, you know, go be great, you know, and go serve, and I will call you great, right? He doesn't do that. Another important point is this. He doesn't say those who are great serve more than others. He says, no, those who are great among you are servants. And there's a huge difference between choosing to, ch- to serve on occasion or when you want to and being a servant. There's a quote, I think it's on the front of your bulletin by Richard Foster, and he helps us see the difference. He says, right here we must see the difference between choosing to serve and choosing to be a servant. When we choose to serve, we're still in charge. We decide whom we will serve and when we will serve. And if we're in charge, we will worry a great deal about anyone stepping on us. That is, taking charge over us. But when we choose to be a servant, we give up the right to be in charge. And there is great freedom in this. If we voluntarily choose to be taken advantage of, then we cannot be manipulated. 
When we choose to be a servant, we surrender the right to decide who and when we will serve. We become available and vulnerable. Let's be honest here. Are you a person who chooses to serve or are you a servant? Pastor uh, Harvey Turner uh, just tweeted this this week. I happened to pick up on it. Here's what he said. Check this out. He says, we love the idea of serving until someone treats us like a servant. It's true, right? We will serve so long as we call the shots. We'll serve so long as we're noticed. We'll serve so long as we get off next week. We will serve so long as we find it worthwhile to us. We will serve so long as it's part of our master plan. We'll serve so long as the person I'm serving appreciates me. But let me ask you, when we're serving this way, who are we really serving? Ourselves. It shouldn't matter what we're called to do. If you're a servant, it doesn't matter what you're called to do. You're not looking for accolades in what you're doing. You're, you are a servant. Here, I, John Newton, he's a slave trader who became a pastor uh, following his conversion to Christ. He wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace. You guys know that? Well, here's what he writes once. Uh, he wrote this. He said, If two angels were to receive at the same moment a commission from God, one to go down and rule the world's grandest empire, the other to go and sweep the streets of its meanest village. It would be a matter of entire indifference to each which service fell to his lot. The post of ruler or the post of scavenger for the joy of the angels lies only in obedience to God's will. God's in heaven saying, I need two angels. I need two volunteers. We'll do it. Where are we going? Okay. You're, one of you is going to go and rule the kingdom, the other is going to sweep streets. Okay, I don't mind. What, what do you want to do? I don't even matter to me. I'm, just send me. Right? Picture that. That's, that's the image of what, of what Jesus is getting at here. But Jesus isn't done with his lesson. Jesus takes us to an entirely different plane of greatness. A place where you cannot go on your own, but by God's grace, Jesus will take you there. What am I talking about? Verse 45 Jesus had perhaps one of the most poignant verses in all of Scripture. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Once again, the Son of Man, that's just Jesus' way of kind of confusing people as to really his identity, but he's speaking about himself, right? Jesus is saying, unlike all the earthly masters you've ever seen, I'm going to be unlike any of them. I came to serve. He came from where? From heaven. He's God's Son. He's divine. He left heaven, came to earth. Why? To be exalted? No, he came to, to serve. Let me show you the structure. Did you pick up on what Jesus is saying? He says, hey, those around you who are great, they're going to be servants. Servant is lower than, than you know, greatness in our eyes. If you want to be first, protos, you want to be higher, well, you're going to be a slave, which is even lower than a servant. The Son of God who, who came to, to live and to die, he, there's none, none greater. The, the Son of God who sits on the throne, greatest of all greatness, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you see that image? It's powerful. Jesus isn't calling us to do something that he himself hasn't done. Jesus came with the express purpose of, of 
honoring his father, living the life of, uh, of a servant and giving that life as a ransom for many. Jesus is unlike any leader, any king who's ever come and dwelt on earth. And his kingdom is upside down. You know, what is the reason why his disciples couldn't even see him rightly? Why was it they were so clouded in their vision? Even on the night in which he was betrayed there. You know, you know, on that night in which he was in the upper room sharing the meal with them, they all gathered into this house and they're all standing around looking at each other. Who's going to wash the feet? And that was the custom. You had to guess that someone's to wash the feet. There's a bowl there. There's a towel there. No one's doing it. Who does it? Jesus. Jesus stoops down and takes a look at these 24 crusty-toed, stinking feet, and he washes them. He shows them, demonstrates to them what it is to be a servant. And yet still at that very meal, you know what they're saying? They're still arguing about who's greatest in the kingdom. In a few hours, they're all going to scatter. What makes the difference is the cross. Jesus went to the cross. It's after the cross that the disciples make sense of who Jesus is. Jesus says, um, Jesus says we're, I'm, I'm going to offer my life as a ransom for many. The word ransom is lutron, the Greek word. It means to purchase someone's freedom, either as a prisoner of war or, or as a slave, to, to purchase someone's freedom. And it's an interesting note. When someone purchased another person's freedom, that person wasn't totally free. They owed their life to the person who bought their freedom. They were indebted to that person. Christ has set you free, not so you can sit on your own throne, but so that you can be bound up in him, that your life belongs to him. That's what Jesus is showing us here. But Jesus doesn't just model for us greatness. He is our greatness. You and I can never do what Jesus did. We can't give up our lives for the souls of others, right? Only Jesus can do that. Some of you here might be thinking, all right, pastor, you know, I'm kind of moved by your words. I want to be a better servant, but I'm not so sure I need Jesus to be a part of that. A couple of things. One, you're arrogant. We just talked about that. You're arrogant. You don't have it in you to do it. You're going to fail. You're going to redefine what greatness is. You're going to somehow want to claw your way to the top. And even in your service, it's still going to all be about you and your own pridefulness. Arrogance is the problem. The disciples, 24 stinking feet were there. They heard the same message you just heard, and they still didn't get it, Right? It's, it's impossible to become a servant like Christ until Christ has set you free to be a servant for him. It's the cross that changes everything for the disciples. It's at the cross where your eyesight gets corrected, right? This, to serve like this requires an amazing amount of humility. And, and humility isn't something you go looking for. I want to be more humble. Right, good luck, okay? You know, if somebody says they're humble, guess what? They're probably not, right? So... But it's at the cross where we get our eyesight corrected. That we come to realize even these nice things that I did for my own glory, they're really filthy rags. And, and that's the dregs that Christ has drunk for me. 
it presses you down to realize I, I'm the person who's a back climber, backstabbing, manipulative person for my own glory. And yet Christ has come to serve me. He's gone even lower than, than low and he's, and, he's, and he's taken upon himself my sin. He's ransomed me. You cannot be a servant until you've experienced that. Jesus was so patient with his disciples. Why? Because he knew where he was going and he knew what he was going to do for them. Jesus hints at it in the passage. I don't know if you picked up on it, but remember Jesus told his disciples, we are going up to Jerusalem. We are going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to go there. You're going to scatter. I'm going to drink the dregs, but I'm taking you with me. I'm not leaving you behind. You need my service. As selfish and misguided as you are, that's the kind of servant I am. I serve the unworthy. And if you are a follower of Christ, you have gone with him up to Jerusalem. He has taken you and all your misguided misperceptions of who he is and your own sinfulness and your own selfishness. And he's, and he's drank that cup. So you can be set free. He's paid the price of your sins. Not so you can go and commandeer Jesus for your own purposes, but no, so that you can continually find yourself at the cross, being reminded of what Christ has done for you. That is how you get the humility to become a servant. You see the greatness and the glory and the goodness and the service of the one who came and lived and died for you. It's only out of that that you even have the desire or the power to truly be a servant. It's at the cross where our eyesight gets flipped properly and we see things rightly. 